Welcome, everybody, to the No Capes Needed podcast. My name is Faye Kai, and I am one of the Maternal Fetal Medicine Fellows at the University of Pennsylvania. Today, for our first guest, we are going to be welcoming Dr. Mikal Elevitz. She is a professor of OBGYN, the Vice Chair of Translational Research, Director of the Maternal and Child Health Resource Center, and importantly, the Director of the Women's Health Collaborative. Welcome, Dr. Elevitz. Thank you so much, Faye. So first of all, I think, Dr. Elevitz, our podcast needs a little bit of introduction. And I think, you know, the Women's Health Collaborative, which has already been very prolific on Twitter and lots of other social media, probably also needs a little bit of introduction. So can you tell me a little bit more, first of all, about what the Women's Health Collaborative is and what its purposes are? The Women's Health Collaborative was formed from really grassroots efforts from women, mostly in OBGYN, but across women's health, both in science and in clinical practice. And it really came out of this great need to address inequity, lack of diversity, and lack of promotion of women in medicine and science from across every field. And the idea of the Women's Health Collaborative was a little bit different than I think other advocacy organizations in that we really take a 360 view to equity, meaning that you have to have diversity and equity in the workforce, you have to have diversity and equity in science, and that all has to come together so that you actually do the best care for women. And so that's really been our mission. It's the response to the Women's Health Collaborative has been outstanding and rewarding, but also speaks to really this great need across women's health research. And again, that's OBGYN, that's medicine, that's surgery, it's research. It's about every field you can think of in medicine and science that have come because they want someone or a group of people to make a difference. That's amazing. And thank you so much for your work that you've already put into this um, and also the work of, I'm sure, many, many people for creating this collaborative. I think, you know, the next thing that we want to introduce, of course, is the podcast itself, No Capes Needed. So first, um, I kind of wanted to ask you the the reasoning behind the naming of the podcast, but also what do you feel like um, we're trying to achieve with the podcast? So No Capes Needed is obviously a little bit of play on superwomen. And I think every woman in medicine and science now has had to take on the role of being a superhero, from balancing their individual lives to balancing families to balancing medicine and research to balancing careers in a male-dominated field. And it seems to me that most women I meet are heroes. They have no capes on, and yet what they do every day makes them a hero. What do you feel like should be our purpose or our goals for this podcast, Dr. Elevitz? Do you feel like, you know, we're trying to promote the goals of the Women's Health Collaborative? Are we bringing on women to talk more about, you know, themselves and to highlight some of these women? I think No Capes Needed podcast should do all of it. I think for so long, there are these silos about different areas in medicine and even in in women's health and even in OBGYN that we all function in these little areas. So that's very detrimental to encouraging women and others to become part of this field, to grow up in this field. So I really see it as two missions. I see it as telling stories, both those that are good and those that maybe are not, whether they're unspoken stories or they're success stories. I think it's understanding the path that women have taken to be where they are, 
but also discussing about what paths need to be taken so that things can change and be better. Absolutely. I think those are great goals. With that, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and, you know, ask you a few more questions about you and hopefully allow our listeners to understand your path um, in women's health and how you came to where you are today, if that's okay. Of course. The first question that I think we need to start with is just how did you become interested in women's health? Um, What exactly did you do to make you become interested in what you're doing today and how did you get there? So, you know, I've been asked this story a lot since starting the Women's Health, and I actually had to start telling a truth. You know, a lot of people say they went into medicine because they were so moved by something that happened to them, that they were so moved by a family member that had to get care, and this very altruistic need to be in medicine. So the truth is, and I'll say it here as I've said it before, the truth is I decided to become a doctor at age 10 so I would be financially independent. I come from a divorce not so happy home. And I never wanted to rely on anyone to make sure that I would be able to stand alone with me alone or with me with my children. And so that was my drive. That was really what pushed me to become a doctor. I was lucky in that that choice turned out to be right. So I first fell in love with biology. And then I worked in a lab during college and worked in an emergency room, which Really, the emergency room kind of made my commitment to medicine was the right path, and I did that in college. It was exciting. It was fun. It was getting to see traumas and take care and fix people, and all that was great. In medical school, it was like, to be honest, the greatest experience. I'm one of those people who found med school to be every day a new adventure, and I took full advantage of it. And I remember thinking somewhere in med school, wow, I'm glad that 10-year-old decided to become a doctor. When I did OBGYN, it was amazing, right? The ability to witness life, the ability to care for women. It struck a chord to me that I didn't even know existed. And I became very passionate about it. And I was already fairly, I would say, socially and politically involved in women's health issues. But taking care of women really made me committed to women's health. That's great. I think, you know, with every success story, there must be some struggles along the way. So I feel like I do have to ask, did you encounter anything that you feel like was maybe a struggle that made you who you were or something that is defining of your character now that you encountered during this path? You ask very poignant questions, Faye. (laughs) I, I would love for my mentees, for the people listening for you as a fellow, for me to tell you, no, there have been no struggles. And I'd be completely lying. Medicine and research as a woman has been a struggle every step of the way. And even as now a tenured professor, there are struggles. Our academic structures, our societies, the way departments are built, the way promotion is done is a constant struggle. It is constantly being held to a different metric It is constantly being critiqued for how you look and what you say in a way that has nothing to do with science. I think as I have grown up, if you will, in academic medicine, I've tried different ways to manage those struggles alone, and I've been successful sometimes and sometimes I have not. As I've become more senior and gone up the ladder, it has been a goal of mine through either mentoring, sponsoring, or actually developing a group at my institution called Women for Women 
to address the need of lack of mentorship and sponsorship for women in medicine and science. It also led a lot to the Women's Health Collaborative. So the struggles are real, and our goal is to hopefully decrease some of them. My goal is to hopefully decrease some of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I I guess that kind of comes to my next question for you, which was what do you think would be the number one thing that we should work on um, or, you know, the biggest goal that we should set in order to help resolve some of these issues in in women being coming involved in healthcare and women's health? So I think the first thing that has to happen, you know, I would like to say equity, but equity can't help happen. Justice can't happen. None of it can happen until we have transparency. Mm-hmm. So there are so many things in medicine and science that are left to this kind of mystery, right? What do I actually need for promotion? What does someone pay coming in as a junior faculty? What does it mean if I do mostly research versus clinical work? What if I'm committed to only clinical work and not research? All those for the majority of people I talk to at their academic institutions is not transparent. Right. Therefore, you cannot achieve equity. So we must at every level push for transparency in how we're paid, how we're promoted, and what leadership positions are available for whatever track we decide to commit to. I mean, those are questions that I think I definitely have as someone who is a fellow and who's thinking about, you know, what should I, what questions should I even be asking, right, when I actually go out and apply for a job? Because I feel like those things that you pointed out were things that I didn't even think about, and I still probably need to think a lot about, and didn't even realize those were questions that I needed to ask. Which, which actually speaks to a next problem, right? So understanding you're just a fellow now, and there are different steps. That comes to mentorship and sponsorship and the structures that we have place in our departments. You very much should start getting that information as you take that next step in your career. And it should not only be provided to you at every place you look at, you should be taught to ask the questions. Right. And then my next question for you is, what do you think would be your number one piece of advice that you would give to people um, like myself or residents or, you know, junior faculty or even medical students who want to do what you do or, you know, go into women's health? So the very first thing that has, that you must do is have a passion for what you want to do. You know, today there was a lot of Twitter threads on work-life balance. And I struggle with the whole concept of work-life balance, work-life integration, work-life harmony. What, What does that mean? And what does it mean for you individually? The biggest advice that I can give junior people early in their early stage in their career is be passionate about what you want to do, right? It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be passionate also about running or cycling or basket weaving or something (laughs) else, but you should really like what you do. This is going to be your job. So to me, work-life balance means I like my work in saying that. There has to be, unfortunately, but it's true, the realism of what our society and what our academic structures are so that what you want for your whole life is doable for your work and that life. And so that comes to us as more senior, helping those who are junior to learn to ask the right questions. And I think, you know, that touches very much on this topic of mentorship, which I think is something that for someone who is looking for mentors is sometimes hard, 
right? Because like, how do you find someone who is going to be a good mentor? How do you know that? And so I guess my next question would be, what should people be looking for in a mentor? What makes a good mentor, I guess? (laughs) Oh, so that's an excellent question. And it is extremely difficult. I would agree with you, you know, especially when you come to a new place, right? You are guessing, right? When you've been at a place for a while, you kind of have insight, right? You start seeing things and figuring out who's successful and who's not and how it happens. But that's really subjective, right? That's not given to you and to understand how to pick that person who's going to help you. As we started this Women's Health Collaborative, I can tell you that it is disheartening for how many people have contacted us saying they went to a place thinking that this was the person who did was the expert in the field, that mm-hmm. they claimed to be a great mentor and sponsor. The early stage career person found that that was not true. What's more disappointing is that some of us more senior would have already known that. So the idea of mentorship has to happen both individually where you're at, but there again, this comes back to transparency. There has to be clarity about who we're promoting in societies, editor journals, et cetera, because there's really this The downstream effect of doing that is that people starting off think these are the people who are going to mentor and sponsor, and that's not necessarily true. So there are some very specific ways on how to find mentor and sponsors, and that is something that the Women's Health Collaborative is actually going to put, not journal clubs, but virtual panels on to help women figure this out in more definitive ways. Well, that's great. And I think, I mean, I would definitely watch these. (laughs) I think a lot of people in my position, um, you know, residents, medical students, fellows, like you said, junior faculty, um, have a lot of trouble finding mentors. And I think to be able to access all of these wonderful, um, more senior members of the Women's Health Collaborative, I think is like, is is especially important for, um, I think, the more junior members of the collaborative. I wanted to shift a little bit our conversation to research because, of course, you do a lot of research and um, you are a leader in research for women's health. So I I wanted to ask, you know, how did you get involved in research? How did you get interested? And then what would your advice be for other people about how to, I guess, become interested in research and how to approach research? So especially in the field that you and I are in, in maternal fetal medicine, there always seems this pull about, well, if I trained in MFM, should I be doing research and clinical work? And the first thing I would tell anyone starting in MFM or thinking about MFM is, again, same thing I said before, find out what you're passionate about. I think the way that our societies and organization, especially maternal fetal medicine, which likely applies to other areas in maternal health, is this need that you're supposed to do something. And that's a fallacy. It should be, again, what drives you. So there are some people who will be excellent clinicians, and they should spend their time being clinicians. And there's some people who should do mostly research, and there's some people who should do both. So again, it's the first decision should be what each person wants. And sometimes it's hard to figure that out, right? That's why people do fellowship. I would say for me, I was one of those people who trained in an academic residency who said I was going to be an academic physician, and I had absolutely no idea what that meant, right? <laughs> None. I had no idea what that meant. Oh, yes, I'm going to be an academic doc. No idea. During my fellowship, it began to make a little more sense. I started working in a lab purely to get my thesis for my certification to be an MFM physician. I actually ended up falling in love with it. And the reason I fell in love with research is because specifically in obstetrical health, we know so little. We make so many guesses about taking care of our patients that it really 
as I started going through my first year of fellowship, felt so frustrating that we guessed at maternal care, that we guessed at how best to take care of women. And when I was in the lab and started working with some animal models, it became clear to me that we actually had the ability to ask questions and do better by women. And that's what's motivated me for almost 20 years now in my research world. That's really great. And I, I do echo that frustration. I think I think most OBs will, um, because you're right, we're totally guessing at a lot of a lot of stuff still. I, I wanted to shift a little bit um, from research and ask you a, another aspect of kind of what I think you do very well, which is, you know, not on our list of questions, but I wanted to ask about social media, which I think is this new horizon for a lot of healthcare providers. Certain people that I've talked to, they'll say like, well, TikTok and Twitter or Instagram is like for for like Generation Z, right? You're like, I'm too old to understand that. But I do think that there is so much that's happening right now on social media that is so important to healthcare in general, whether that's disseminating information, et cetera. And I wanted to ask you, you know, one barrier for people to get into social media is they're like, I don't have time. How do I get involved in Twitter? How do I post a tweet every day, every hour, whatever it is that certain popular people on social media do when I barely have the time to make myself breakfast or to go to the gym. And so what is your approach to that? Because I know that you're, you, you post a lot on Twitter and I feel like I can't keep up. So let's be very clear. My Twitter account was started three years ago. I did not become active on it till last November. So there was a push for me to become active on on Twitter. Um, I've done, I've been on Facebook. I'm still on Facebook. I have Instagram. I'm forbidden by my tw- teenage children to actually get on TikTok. I'm allowed to watch things, but I'm not allowed to be on. Um, that's the rule in our house. I'm allowed to watch other doctors do what they would classify as not the best things on TikTok, but I personally am not allowed to be on it. So that's a rule I abide by. I will tell you, so there's the So Me movement and other social media movements there is a lot that happens in social, political, and academic life on Twitter. And I think that became very obvious to me with things that were happening in our country a couple of years ago. And I realized somewhere last fall that I had a voice. I don't have a big voice on Twitter. There are people with 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 million dollar followers. But there is a community that is specifically involved in women's health that is involved in OB care and pregnancy, and involved in women's health issues and inequity. So as far as making time, we all have to prioritize things, right? This is is what we do, right? So there are 24 hours in a day, and we can decide what becomes a priority or not. So I think I've heard from certain people in our field, right, just what you alluded to. Well, I don't get it, or I don't have time, or you're wasting time. I will tell you when I first started on Twitter, a colleague of mine Googled me and found a Twitter comment where I was saying something against laws that were prohibiting abortion and made the comment to me that that was not professional of me. And that's probably what got me more on Twitter because it is very professional of me and it is actually my duty as a woman's health caregiver to talk about reproductive rights. So that all kind of spurred me on. But again, as far as actually having the time, You can get a lot from Twitter and not have to post. You don't have to be on every hour. You know, one of the most interesting things I find about Twitter is take out the advocacy part or actually even take out the community part. I have found Twitter because of the way journals release their articles now. So whether it's preprints or journals doing the first release, it happens on Twitter. 
Right. Yeah. Right. So I, everyone wants to know how I find the articles first. It's usually because during either lunch or a break that I'm taking, I scroll through Twitter for a few minutes and I pick my favorite articles. So again, it becomes to priorities and what you want to do. I don't think every physician needs to be on social media. I think there are values to Twitter that do not exist with Facebook and Instagram that apply to being in the field of medicine and science. I would totally agree with that. And that is, you know, as someone who is on Twitter um, and posting from a couple of accounts that I get exactly what you're saying, which is I do think that a lot of us have a voice. And I will also say that as someone who, you know, is interested in academics, I also go to your account because then I'm like, oh, great. Now I have my readings. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, um, because you're right. I think the traditional way is at least of getting articles and things like that um, from email or from print especially is just too slow. And sometimes Agreed. I think especially with our society today, it's almost like the quicker the better. And so I'm always like, well, how did so-and-so get this article so quickly? And it's because, you know, they follow ACOG on Twitter and ACOG releases everything first on Twitter. So for just our, you know, the last few minutes of the podcast, I just wanted to ask a couple of more fun questions, I suppose. Um, so one of those things would be, what's something that you do, Dr. Alvitz, that keeps you grounded? So you have a long day of work, you know, I'm hoping that it's not Twitter. <laughs> Heavens what, no. <laughs> but what do you do so that, I think, and everybody has to do this, to feel more human, to feel recharged so that you're able to get up the next day and keep going? So I will tell you for years, I didn't do anything, Faye. And I would tell everyone, please don't do that. Somewhere in my 40s, I found yoga. I was never an athlete, never worked out, despite misconceptions, was never a gymnast nor a cheerleader. Again, kind of stereotypical things that get applied to, to females. Um, I actually started doing yoga for meditation because of the workload. And somehow I found my way in power yoga and decided I'm really competitive. Um, that's not really surprising from the other end, but was as an athlete. So I started doing yoga. That led to CrossFit. I actually, as a 50-year-old, competed in Olympic lifting and- That's amazing. Got a gold medal for over 50 in the AO American Open last year. So to me, fitness has been a real grounding outlet. It- for what I've done for the last seven years as far as fitness, it's usually something I can't think about anything else. So whether it's CrossFit, now Pelotoning, whatever, there's no way to think about work. Mm -hmm. The endorphins are a biological blessing um, that we don't use enough of in medicine and probably in healthcare. And I do a lot of it. Um, I actually did CrossFit, CrossFit and Olympic lifting with my husband for years. And so it was this very grounded way to do something together to get endorphins and to have something totally different than medicine or science. Um, so fitness, and then I would say my family time. My I have a 17 and a 20-year-old who, um, between their TikToks and sitting with them and everything else, keep me humble, grounded, and really happy. That's amazing. Um, and congratulations on the fitness achievements as well as your family, of course. Um, and then last question, do you have a goal that you set for yourself this year? Not, um, I don't want to say, you know, for work or research or anything like that, but any personal goals, anything from like, I want to read five books this year or something like that. I always have had the goal, I think, especially since I hit 50, of being healthier. Every year, that's kind of a goal of mine. What can I do, even if it's something little, to be healthier? I think in the last couple of years, and especially with the last year between the pandemic and kind of seeing to me a very negative side of our country, which we've seen before, just became very ugly. The goal would be, and I use this term understanding that it's used very badly, of wellness. 
of being present, of trying to let go of the things that I can't control nor that actually matter, while at the same time retaining my passion for things that do and trying to find that difference. So that's that's very much been a goal of mine for this year. And I would say starting this spring, the idea of the Women's Health Collaborative is now very much a goal of mine to see how, if I can have a broader impact in helping our profession, but really in helping women. Well, those are both excellent goals. And um, I very much look forward to seeing where the Women's Health Collaborative is going. And I look forward very much to participating um, in the events and the meetings and things like that that will be going forward. And we so appreciate, Faye, your contribution already to the Women's Health Collaborative, and we so look forward to working with you. Oh, well, thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Elevitz, for coming on to the podcast with us today. Thank you, Faye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been No Capes Needed, the official podcast of the Women's Health Collaborative. If you enjoy this podcast, go ahead and go on to your favorite podcatcher on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you like to listen to podcasts on, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can also find the Women's Health Collaborative on Twitter at Women's HC. Women's is spelled with an X. And also on our website, womenshealthcollaborative.org. 